Hello and welcome to one of several mini-casts in the Knit Sonic series. I'm Felicity Ford, also known as Felix, and in the last episode of the Knit Sonic podcast, uh, we talked all about the wonders of electricity. We talked about some of the amazing sounds relating to electricity in daily life, about Bjork's views on electronic dance music when she was working on Homogenic, um, her album in the 1990s, uh, and we talked about how a 1930s textbook on the wonders of electricity inspired some of my adventures in knitting stranded colour work. This minicast takes that electricity theme a little bit further. Last week I introduced you to Sarah and Jonathan who run Perlescence together, and you may remember that I mentioned Jonathan's interest in electronic music. When we chatted, he mentioned the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and the works of a true pioneer of electronic music and a heroine of mine, Delia Derbyshire, who worked in the Radiophonic Workshop and produced many incredible pieces of work on magnetic tape, including the iconic Doctor Who theme tune. fascinated by the Radiophonic Workshop, an experimental music department that was part of the BBC. It was founded in the late 1950s and it officially closed in 1998. I'm especially interested in the experiences of the women who worked there and in 2013 I was commissioned by Museruole, an Italian festival of women in experimental music to produce a radio show reflecting on their work and how it's influenced my own work with sounds. I thought some of you might enjoy hearing my thoughts on the Radiophonic Workshop. So, Museruole and my comrade in field recording and sound craft, Valeria Malini, have graciously allowed me to redistribute this work through my own channels. Thanks to Museruole, Italian Festival of Women in Experimental Music, and Valeria Malini, comrade in sound, for allowing me to share this with you, my Nitsonic comrades. I hope you enjoy it. Nitsonic, exploring the sonic world of wood. K-N-I-T-S-O-N-I-K dot com Nitsonic. Nitsonic. First, I play a G-sharp and an F-sharp on a concert flute. The original was recorded on an E-flat clarinet, so my notes are not the same. I must lower the pitch. When the piece was first created, the technology used included tape machines, an echo room, a handful of filters and microphones. So instead of digitally using software to bring the notes down in pitch, I slow them down. As I do this, the pitch of the notes descends as if I were working with reels of tape and slowing them down in playback. The original version contained a third note, an octave lower than the second. Now I add reverb to the sound to make it resemble the original. 
I add splashes made by playing in a washing-up bowl filled with water. Through this experiment I aim to invoke some sense of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and the legacies left by three pioneering women who worked there, Daphne Oram, Delia Derbyshire and Madalena Fagandini. I am Felicity Ford and this radio show, Radiophonics and Me, has been produced for Museruole 2013. My processed flute notes and washing up bowl splashes are an attempt to recreate one of the first pieces Daphne Oram worked on at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop in 1958. Apart from the obvious differences in our technology, my digitally produced version differs from Oram's because the sound sources used for the notes are so different. The flute has a metallic timbre, while the wooden clarinet sounds more mellow. Also, the lossless digital processes I'm using do not soften sounds like analogue magnetic tape did. Later, we'll hear Delia Derbyshire and Madalena Fagandini discussing how the specific material qualities of things are key for giving texture and character to radiophonic sounds. But for now, it's 1958, and we are still in Daphne Oram's ocean. This piece was made to be an atmospheric backdrop for a BBC radio drama production. Before the workshop was opened, Oram had worked on soundtracks for several other BBC drama productions, including Amphitryon 38, the first television production to be assigned a special radiophonic credit. Radiophonic music was built by hand. Pure tones were produced using oscillators. Or objects were recorded within the studio. Once the sounds were transferred onto tape, they could be cut up and looped and looped and looped and slowed down or sped up to produce different pitches. Reverb could be added by playing sounds back into a room containing a speaker and a microphone. 
These techniques were being experimented with on the continent in dedicated music studios, such as those in Paris, where Pierre Schaeffer was pioneering musique concrète, and in Cologne, where Stockhausen was experimenting with musique électronique. However, where the studios in mainland Europe were focused on producing new forms of music, the politics within the BBC meant that its radiophonic workshop was never allowed to purely focus on this. Its role was rather to serve other BBC departments, producing radiophonic effects, background atmospheres and interval beats for between programmes. Radiophonic music is strange technology-shaped sine wave-saturated warm tape tones could refer to states of mind, imagined alien technologies and other elements of drama not easily conveyed by an orchestra or straightforward field recordings. The idea of working with recorded source sounds and putting them into musical patterns also appealed to producers who liked the idea of, say, a programme about car maintenance, having car sounds in its intro. or a programme called Great Zoos of the World, having a theme tune composed from animal sounds. This means that radiophonic music was constrained by the needs of different BBC departments and they often had to work with scripts and words and to very strict guidelines. However, this also meant that it infiltrated the homes of ordinary people, leaking in, behind, between and beneath more conventional BBC material. Where electronic music produced on the continent was destined for concert halls, the sounds produced by the radiophonic workshop were heard by families sat round dinner tables. One of its most famous creations, originally realised by Delia Derbyshire for Ron Grainer in 1963, defined the domestic soundscape for generations of children at tea time on Saturdays. Delia Derbyshire's swooping sound still evoked the UK's popular science fiction series, Doctor Who. <laughs> However, one senses that working on populist productions destined for cosy family times was not always appealing to the women who are the focus of this show and did not always permit them to produce the darkly textured, powerful electronic soundscapes they were capable of making.
Before the workshop was established, Daphne Oram had worked at the BBC as a music balancer and had been promoted to music studio manager by the early 1950s. From this position, she had consistently campaigned for a dedicated electronic music studio to be set up within the BBC. Yet just months after the Radiophonic Workshop was established, with Daphne Oram as its full-time studio manager, she left to set up her own independent studio at Tower Folly. The Oramic studio is in Kent, in a converted oast house, only some 28 miles or so from Piccadilly Circus. I'm Daphne Oram, the director of the studio, and I'd rather like to introduce you to some of the very varied sort of soundtracks which are produced at my studio. Lewis Niebuhr writes in Special Sounds that Daphne Oram's position as the first woman electronic composer is vitally important. One senses that working in service to other BBC departments was a limitation her creativity could not bear. Her studio at Tower Folly was the first electronic music studio built and run by a woman, and there Daphne Oram was able to dedicate herself to the development of her unique instrument, the Oramics machine. As well as electronic sounds you heard in that piece, some of the new Oramics. Oramics graphic sound produced not by electronic generators, nor by musical instruments, but by drawing graphs and feeding these graphs into computer-type equipment. The equipment uses this analogue and some digital information to produce the sound. It's all very new and it's my own invention and as far as I know there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Gradually I'm evolving the new musical notation and finding it absolutely fascinating. The sounds can be more musical than normal electronic music. These sounds you are hearing in the background now were all made by the graphs, yet they sound rather like strange new musical instruments. After leaving the BBC, Oren performed in concerts, taught electronic music at schools and in her home, and wrote a book describing her unique vision for electronic music. In posthumously produced collections of her work, concert performances, school workshops, privately commissioned jingles and domestic recording experiments sit beside one another. <laughs> High School, 19th of January 1968, Form 3N, Piece 4, Tambourines, Woodblock, Cymbal, Hard Cymbals, Drums, Big Drum, Xylophones, Triangles, Guitars, Vibrator, Shakers, Metrophones and Tape Loops. This is a piece composed by Denise McDermott. I have called this surprise piece because of the symbol coming in suddenly and surprising everybody.
you? Music pervaded all areas of her life. Power tools, washing machines, and cats all feature at different points. And the emotional range of her work is immense, spanning everything from challenging avant-garde electronic music performed in concert halls on the Aramics machine, to playful jingles produced to pay the rent for companies like Nestle. The sounds you can hear now have been produced with an iPad app developed to simulate the Oramics machine. And to close my section on Daphne Oram, I will read from her book, An Individual Note of Music, Sound and Electronics, over the top of my own experiments with this app, derived from her invention. At the end of the last chapter, we gave ourselves some specifications for our machine. The first facility we required was freehand drawing of all instructions. The second facility, each parameter instructions to be drawn separately. Number three facility is a monitoring system to allow immediate or almost immediate feedback of the result. We have an immediate visual feedback of what we're writing in our graphic notation. And as we gradually come to know the language, our inner ears will let us hear what we're doing. But we need a real oral feedback too. After writing a few notes, we shall want to be able to press a button and make the machine play back to us through the loudspeakers just what we have written. We shall want it to read all the parameters at once and give us the result, compute the result. When we have made our slight alteration, we shall want to hear it straight away and go on adjusting and monitoring and on and on adjusting and monitoring, until finally the results satisfy that inner ear of ours, which originally conceived the sound. With those facilities, we have completed our original specification. It was a very basic specification, and I am sure you can think of many more facilities which would be desirable. It really is rather an interesting line of thought to pursue. What are the factors which make us human, and how can we humanise the machines around us? so that we can convey more of our individuality through them. Shortly after Daphne Oram left the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, in 1959, Maddalena Fagandini joined it. She is less well known than Daphne Oram and Delia Derbyshire, and fewer of her creations are available to hear. But like Oram, she'd worked in the BBC for years prior to joining the workshop and had a musical background. One of the first pieces she worked on with Desmond Briscoe, who'd also worked with Daphne Oram on The Ocean, 
was a soundtrack for a documentary depicting the life of John Morris in the six months following his release from prison. piece opens with sounds produced by jangling keys, heavy metal locks, the ominous mutterings of other prisoners. These recognisable sounds collapse then into an unstable rhythm of far less recognisable sounds and climax with a mildly alarming gong. The real and unreal are mixed, as Lewis Niebuhr writes in Special Sound. The workshop team offered a symbolic interpretation of the prisoner's world, what the listener heard was a reflection of that sound passed through the mind of the protagonist. By mixing these alien sounds with sounds made by recognisable things, it was possible to colour the real world in a sort of electric light, to lend descriptions of reality an unsettling emotional atmosphere. Fagandini had a precise way of balancing field recordings of everyday things with electronically generated sounds. The closing titles for The Chem Lab Mystery both suggest the bubbling test tubes of a chemistry lab and also invoke the mysterious futuristic potentials of science. The bubbling sounds rise, hopefully, aided by ascending sine waves. <laughs> In an interview with Joe Hutton, Fagandini says, It wasn't me, but the sounds themselves that were suggesting what to do. You learn that the secret is in the material itself. It's there somewhere for you to listen and find it. It has its own rhythm. You have to let it happen, let it be. Then you can play around with what you know about music to help construct sound which makes musical sense to people listening. In the small quantity of literature available on Fagandini, her ability to create lyrical, complex rhythms out of found sounds such as the one you can hear now is often mentioned. What you hear is time beat, an interval produced to fill gaps between television programmes. It was heard by George Martin, who arranged through Robin's music for an accompaniment to the radiophonic track to be composed. He then bought the rights to the interval. At the time when Fagandini worked on time beat, Nobody at the Radiophonic Workshop was individually credited for their work. When George Martin's remix of Fagandini's original creation went to press, it was released under the fictional male name of Ray Cathode. Jermaine Greer makes a great case in The Obstacle Race for the importance of a healthy ego to the artist. I sometimes wonder what it meant for Daphne Oram, 
Madalena Fagandini and Delia Derbyshire that their names weren't attached to the compositions they worked on in the Radiophonic Workshop. Assigning credit to what they made while they were alive has become an important mission for history and for music. Men working in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop were equally affected by its no-names policy, but the restrictions placed on creatives working there meant it functioned like a guild of craftsmen. That this guild served other departments in the BBC rather than being a purely musical project resulted in combinations of sounds in a particular type of small, perfectly formed sonic creation not found anywhere else in the whole genre of electronic music. And, um... Yes, well... Uh, well, you know... Yes. I have kids. And, um... Well, speaking personally, I, I feel that... Talk out. Talk out. Talk out. Talk out. That radiophonic music always had some purpose beyond itself and that it was always about something connects it to everyday life in amazing ways. Recently, while visiting an exhibition at the Science Museum, I got especially excited about how this relates to ordinary things. So these were the original tools at the beginning of when it was first opened, the radiophonic workshop the ferrograph tape recorder, tape splicing block, tape loop guides, tape loops, sound sources, and a lampshade used as a sound source by Delia Derbyshire, 1967. I think one of the things that's most interesting about um, everyone who worked in the radiophonic workshop, but particularly um, Delia Derbyshire um, is this is how thinking about the sounds that you want to have and then not having very much stuff around to hand you can just like she had this great sensitivity mm -hmm. to this lamp will make the right tone this bit of wood will make the right tone here is the famous Delia Derbyshire lampshade. You can have the honour of donning fantastic. it. Fantastic. This was Delia's one of her main sounds. It was it? for. She got loads of stuff out of this because it makes a lovely sound. Delia's lampshade was used as a source for creating blue veils and golden sands, and if you listen carefully, you can hear the resonances.
What I love in this piece is that it perfectly illustrates the idea of how radiophonic music can reference the unknown, the landscape inside the listener's mind, in this case, a landscape of sands, mirages, deserts. I also love that every time I see a metal lampshade, I will now wonder how it sounds and whether it has a desert inside it, just like my washing up bowl now will forever contain somehow the ocean. The most powerful use of sounds to convey inner psychic states and the geography of the mind perhaps comes in the series produced by Delia Derbyshire with playwright Barry Bermange entitled Inventions for Radio. The Dreams I'm being followed and pursued by something. And I could feel that there was somebody behind. I was running and I was being chased. I'm running down the street, into a house, through the house. Down the stairs. Out the back, I was being chased. Faster and faster. And I ran for all I was worth. My clothes were dragging me back. Bermange interviewed people on the subject of their dreams and Derbyshire provided soundscapes to support and embellish their words. The results are eerie and dark and sound partial, like a piece of something in which the whole cannot be recalled. It's an uncanny oral equivalent to that sense of waking up and just half remembering your dreams. Greens. Red. Black. Green. Black and blue and green. Sometimes it, it is blue and sometimes it, it, it is green. It's just vivid green. It's red, kind of a terracotta red. Red. Black. Black. Black and white. White. Silver, glittering silver. Orange, yellow. Bluey colors, bluey greeny colors. White, gray, blue, black. Red and blue and green and yellow and orange. Not distinct colour, but merging together to give a blurred, vivid pattern. Natural phrases are taken as rhythmic patterns. It was very dark all the way round, and it was a very sharp edge. I knew that if I watched and kept breathing properly, I could keep on the top of this ridge. Then I sort of felt myself falling over the cliff. I was falling. Falling over the cliff. Falling over a cliff. This conveys Derbyshire's extraordinary understanding of rhythms and her mathematical talents. If the sound we want exists already in real life, say, we couldn't go and record it. The sound I want for the rhythm of this piece uh, it needs to be a very short, dry, hollow wooden sound I can get from this. And then the sound for the punctuating chords, I want the sound of a short wire string being plucked. And then all we have to do is cut the notes the right length. We can join them together on a loop and listen to them. And then with the higher notes, 
of the rhythm. Again, we join them together on a loop and play it in synchronization with the first day. And over this, we can play the sound of the plucked string, which can be either in the form of a loop like this, Delia Derbyshire's approach to combining and organising sounds was intricate and precise, and she was particularly interested in very complex time signatures, 11 and 13 time. A track produced by her while developing Dance for Noah is a precursor to what we would now call techno. As well as working at the Radiophonic Workshop, Derbyshire collaborated with David Vorhouse and Brian Hodgson as the band The White Noise, releasing an LP entitled An Electric Storm in 1969, from which this track, Love Without Sound, is taken. Her work was also integral to the music for Tomorrow's People, on which she worked with Dudley Simpson and Brian Hodgson. What she is best known for, perhaps unfairly, given the breadth of her output, is her work on the Doctor Who theme tune. At the time when Ron Grainer heard the amazing version she had produced from his scant notes, he offered her half of the royalties. But the BBC Radiophonic Workshop managers wouldn't allow such riches to be bestowed on an assistant studio manager, which was Delia Derbyshire's job title when she worked on the piece.
Derbyshire left the BBC Radiophonic Workshop in 1973, whereon she packed all her tape reels into serial boxes and put them into the attic where they remained until she died. She didn't produce any music again until the late 90s, when Pete Kemba from Sonic Boom took an interest in her amazing work and involved her in an album he was producing under the Experimental Audio Research label. 267 tapes of Delia Derbyshire's work are now held at Manchester University. Many of the compositions they contain can't be published because of copyright complications. I wish for her to have in the future a CD featuring a confident, smiling picture of her face on the front, a comprehensive collection of sonic brilliance inside, and her name emblazoned across the top. I will close by reflecting on what it's meant for my generation to inherit the legacies left by these pioneering women. Personally, they've fed my interest in building a creative practice around field recordings of everyday things and places. I've made jingles about washing up. You've got your cutlery, your saucepan, your plate and your cup. They're sitting there just waiting for you to wash up. So fetch up the gloves and fetch up the scrubber. It's time for another adventure in Washington. An adventure in Washington. An adventure in Washington. An adventure in Washington. Their work means I have inherited an appreciation for the timbre of such things as woks and lampshades. On ways of working with sound which draw on the natural rhythms of speech and which are about something other than sound for its own sake and a fascination with domestic space as a site of meaning and a sonic space. However, as well as the rich sonorities they have left behind, I love the photos that remain of them. It bothers me that how women and technology are combined in these images still seems thrilling and exotic. But the spectacle of women confidently operating huge banks of dials, buttons and knobs and presiding over electronic studios with a sense of pride, competence and ownership is still sadly unusual. This is a fact I hope to change in my own uses and appropriations of technology and in the images generated of me, active in my practice. I love that these women and their amazing and distinct works are being reclaimed for history by scholars, geeks and artists. I only wish there was more time to play you more of what they made, because the extraordinary legacies of Daphne Oram, Maddalena Fagandini and Delia Derbyshire are in the end most exciting in their sonorities and in the texture we call radiophonics. You've been listening to Radiophonics and Me, produced by Felicity Ford for Museruole 2013. A full track listing detailing all the music shared in the show is available online at museruole.tumblr.com and at my own website, felicityford.co.uk.
Radiophonics and Me was commissioned by Valeria Malini and produced by Felicity Ford for the Museruole Festival of Women in Experimental Music between June 5th to September the 26th 2013 it toured in different formats on different stations as part of an international radio tour to find out more visit museruole.tumblr.com